Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science? Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. Rules and, and ethics and everything else. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. And it's a call-in show, everybody. Uh, the, the great, interesting part of the show is when you call in with your insightful questions and comments. So if you want to be on the show, I hope you do, please go to askbillnye.com. And as I like to say, type on in. So no matter what your chosen uh, walk of life, whether you're a scientist, an engineer, a diplomat, a venture capitalist, international relations specialist, nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear weapons is important to all of us. It's especially important to everyone who can vote. Governments around the world have to work together to not use these things and to not let terrorists use these things. And it affects all of us. So no matter what you're doing in life, nuclear weapons should at some level fascinate you. And I'm joined today once again by science writer, editor, and longtime friend, Corey S. Powell. And Corey, you're old enough to remember ducking and covering and the actual concern about actual nuclear war. That's right, Bill. And joining us is Dr. Alex Wellerstein. He is a science historian, nuclear weapons expert, teaches at the Stevens Institute of Technology. And may I say, Alex, we are thrilled to have you here, man. Uh, thanks for coming in. Welcome to Science Rules, Dr. Alex Wellerstein. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks. So uh, we're going to talk about the history of weapons. Now, I lived through the Cold War, I think. I lived through the very beginning of it and uh, what it's become today. It's still going on. Uh, but why did you, such a young man... <laughs> choose to study nuclear weapons? You know, when I started, it was the, the way people talked about it was like, why would you do this? It's all done. Uh, what is there to say? Where, why even? Oh, all the research has been researched. The research has been researched. Why learn Russian? All of that's in the past. You learned Russian? Yeah, I tried to anyway. Do, I, I mean, do you speak it well enough to get around? I know or? how to say hello. I mean, that's worth something. How do you do it? Dress foot, yeah. Oh, dress right. foot, yeah. <laughs> Simply put. But, 
It's amazing how in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, nobody thinks that's irrelevant history anymore. Nobody thinks Russian's an irrelevant language anymore. There's been a real about face. Uh, as for why I got into it, I was a student at UC Berkeley. And Berkeley has a reputation well-earned for being, you know, a sort of lefty, hippie, you know. Probably anti-nuke. Anti-nuke. Well, it's got actually, it's a nuclear-free zone, which is ironic since Seaborg, uh, you know, discovered and plutonium. Lawrence Livermore is right up the street. Yeah. Well, and and at the Berkeley Lab, they actually have the the classroom where they discovered plutonium for the first time and created it. So, you know, it's it's so linked to this history. It's uh, and I thought. My God, this is so interesting. How does this place that's so linked to nuclear history, it's where Oppenheimer was a professor, Seaborg, Lawrence, all of these great heroes of the Manhattan Project and all that, how does it become this sort of reconcile itself with this, this sort of lefty politics that it ends up having? And the image that stuck in my head that made me want to look into this, Telegraph Avenue, this is where everybody's selling patchouli and, and mm -hmm. tie-dye and all that. Mm -hmm. They had at one point when I was a student there, banners for each of the Nobelists that Berkeley had associated with them sort of hanging from the street. And one of them was Glenn Seaborg, and it was over a guy selling peace uh, shirts and peace signs. And I thought, I wonder if this guy realizes who's above him, right? The guy who invents plutonium. I had lunch with Glenn Seaborg. Wow. And this is an anecdote at lunch, but as far as I know, I will never forget it. He said, Bill, they wanted me to call it plutonium, but come on, plutonium, that sounds a lot cooler. <laughs> yeah. And he said, keep in mind that plutonium is not only radioactive, but it's also quite toxic. It's the heaviest of heavy metals. And he said the symbol was going to be PT, but he insisted it be, you're nodding. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He insisted it be PU because this stuff stinks. That's what he told us at lunch. Uh -huh. As a guy, mechanical engineer, grew up with space program, worked briefly on a fighter plane. Uh, when did the Cold War end? Depends when you want to dice it. Because I don't it, think it's over. 90, no, well, that's exactly it. I mean, I think people are gradually realizing and have been for a little while that what seemed like this great breakage in history is maybe not quite as great a break as it seemed. Is there a year that people think the Cold War ended? Is that when you peg a year, the, the, the two years that are usually brought up, one is 89 when the Berlin Wall Berlin falls, Wall. and the other one is 91 when the Soviet Union falls apart. Mm. Um, went out of business. Went out of business, became a bunch of little... Uh, republics, quote-unquote, little republics. Uh, but it's still going on. Well, we still have... It's not exactly the same dynamic, of course. We don't have a Soviet Union. It, the U.S. is the big superpower in a way that Russia is not the Soviet Union. It's a weaker state. But at the same time, uh, there are emerging bigger states. And also, we still have a lot of these same dynamics, arms races, competitions, distrust, all of that stuff. And, and I think this is to your bigger point, there's still thousands of these weapons and they're still aimed at each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. But in terms of public perception and the pop culture, people certainly don't talk about nuclear weapons or worry about nuclear weapons they, the way they did uh, in the 80s and 70s. And I, I, well, I, I can't vouch for it, certainly in the 60s. So I did duck and cover yeah. in my elementary school in Washington, D.C. We, my family would store water in old Clorox bottle, bleach bottles. And we talked a lot about building cinder block walls, revetments to prevent. And then uh, the nuclear fallout shelter sign was everywhere. And there were apocalyptic science fiction stories about what are you going to do when 
the nuclear weapons go off and people can't get in the shelter. Do you kill your neighbors? Right. And this so was a staple of like Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. I mean, this was a very mainstream culture. And, so is the fact that it's not so much in the pop culture now, I mean, have people grown numb to the risk? I don't think it's numb. I think people are not thinking about it. It's just not on their radar, which is why some of these, when we have crisis with North Korea or that false alarm in Hawaii, that stuff really hits a nerve with people because they, they don't really want it to be the case. Just to give you an idea, though, of how, you know, your perception that the early 80s and all day after and all that is not wrong at all. They've done surveys. They did surveys in the 80s where they asked uh, Americans, like, what are the top issues that worry you the most? And they didn't give them any list of what what could be. Pick anything. And it could be the economy. It could be crime. GMOs. G- well, it's 83, so yes. no GMOs <laughs> yet. But that'll be there, right? Right. Uh, one out of four Americans said nuclear war, unprompted. That's, that's a huge level. One out of four think that's the biggest issue today, bigger than the economy, bigger than crime. If you ask people that today, I have colleagues who have redone this research, mm-hmm. nuclear war is not on the list of things that people are concerned about, unless you give it to them as an option, and then maybe some small number will pick it. But that's how, it, it's just not on the radar. I'd like to go to the phones. Is this a good time? This is an excellent because time Because I go got a phones. good feeling... Larry, are you there? Hi, I'm here. How are you oh, doing? Oh, great. Where are you calling from, and what is the question that you have? Uh, I'm calling from New York City, mm-hmm. and my question is, um, you know, there's we got all these nukes on Earth, and they're bad. Everyone pretty much agrees that they're no good. Um, why don't we just blast them all into space, into outer space? There's so much space up there, a lot of room, nothing really to hurt. Why not just pop them right up there? <laughs> Get, get, rid, get rid of all the nuclear weapons. It's a, it's a, it's a very tempting idea. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> uh, you know, that's a good question. One, uh, we, we can ask about space. You don't need to send them into space. We could just take them apart uh, and do stuff with them, uh, probably better things. So uh, uh, Take them apart, but they're so cool. Yeah, I know. But you could do it. And, and, and I actually just bring this up because a lot of times I mention that and people say, how do you take them apart? And it's really boring. You like get a screwdriver and you crack them open and you take out the fuel and you do it in a very careful facility so that if something goes wrong, it kills you and not everybody else. So, you know, but it's doable. And then you could take the fuel and you could put it in the nuclear reactors, which is like maybe a better use than just shooting them into space. But as for why don't we get rid of them, uh, there are some people who think we should. And and there's actually a number of countries that have signed a treaty in the U.N. Uh, to prohibit all nuclear weapons. And, of course, not any countries with nuclear weapons or their allies. <laughs> but still, that's, you know, there are a lot of people in this world who think maybe we should just get rid of them. The answer that you'll get if you go to a country that has nuclear weapons. France. France or, 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 or China, whoever, is they'll say, look, we live in a world where the other guy has nuclear weapons. And if we don't have nuclear weapons, we'll be vulnerable. Now, if could you imagine getting all of the guys to agree, all the countries around the table to get rid of them? People have tried. Uh, but a lot of countries get a sense of security from their weapons for good or bad. A lot of them actually get a sense of prestige from their weapons. Absolutely. Uh, and so they're very... Uh, hesitant to get rid of them. We have a a very small sample size. Larry, would you support the idea of the United States unilaterally stepping ahead and saying, we're getting rid of all of our nuclear weapons, and then we're hoping other people will follow? I think that's a good... I think that would just be a a good show of of goodwill, especially if it uh, included a ceremony where we all gathered around and watched them shoot into space. (laughs) So, Larry... (laughs) Alex, Corey, 
Let me ask you this. Isn't the more likely way to go is we'll disassemble one of them. Then if you disassemble another one of yours, we'll disassemble another one. You, me, you, me. Isn't that been tried? Uh, we, we, so what we usually do— Or in Larry's case, Larry, we shoot one into space. You shoot one into space. So, Thank you. So, But Larry, notice that, you know, I'm the, I'm the CEO of the Planetary Society. I spend a lot of time with the rocket people. <clears throat> notice that once in a while a rocket just blows up. And you don't want that. And so trying to convince people, let's say, uh, people in China or South Africa or— North Korea. We're shooting this rocket into space with a nuclear weapon. We promise it's not going to go off. Really, uh, trust us. You see, and then it blew up. Do you see that would? There could be the modern word. What's the modern word? Problematic. Could be problematic. Uh, but could be embarrassing for sure. But Alex, embarrassing would definitely be embarrassing. Yeah, Alex, why? Awkward. Is that going to work? We'll disassemble one, you disassemble one. So most of the agreements we have are not about warheads, but they're about missiles or bombers. And the reason is you can see a missile or a bomber from a satellite, so you can confirm it's been done. Whereas if I wanted to confirm that you took apart your warhead, how am I going to do that? You'd have to let inspectors in. I'd let inspectors, and I'd have to give away information about my warheads, which I may not want to do. So there's actually people who have worked on systems. Uh, there's, there's a team at Princeton and a team at MIT. They're very smart physics people. Um, for how could you prove to somebody you took apart a weapon without letting them see the weapon? And there's different sort of elaborate schemes that you can how imagine. How can you do elaborate? An ela that scheme has got to be elaborate. We're talking about something that's much like the size of a grapefruit. Right? Well, the wet. Well, the, the the warheads may be the size of a trash can, but the the thing in the middle is the size of the grapefruit, right? And the question is, uh, could could I prove to you that this trash can is a nuclear weapon? And then if I can, can I prove to you that I took it apart? And all without you looking inside the trash can. And you can imagine, so some one of the schemes involves uh, basically shooting uh, radiation through it and watching at the, well, not even x-rays, because you don't want to see the secrets, but doing something that'll like scatter off of it. Mm -hmm. And could you tell the difference between if I gave you one of these and I said, I 100% assert this is a warhead, could I show you that the, whatever the next one is was exactly the same on the inside as A, as the first one? So... You could say, well, I, I got rid of 10 trash cans and he claimed the first one was a nuclear weapon, so I know it's a nuclear weapon. The obvious flaw is what if the first one isn't a nuclear weapon mm -hmm. but something else? Uh, but there's ways around that too. But this is why warheads are tricky. Uh, they're trickier to they, – they call this verification in the field. It's sure. very hard to verify that you've disassembled a warhead. Whereas if I want you to disassemble a bomber, you can do, which we do, take the bomber out onto an air uh, you know, runway, chop the wings off with a giant guillotine, and just let the satellites look at this broken bomber. And so there are these boneyards of old planes that you can yeah. see from space this way. So this right. sounds like an, another good reason not to shoot things into space, which is you'd have to verify what you actually shot into space, whereas what you're describing is something that is more easily recorded and 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 so I, I'm also imagining, and, and I don't want to put words in Larry's mouth, but I'm also imagining that when he goes into space, he wants it to blow up. Uh, uh, Larry, uh, do you uh, want uh, it to blow Larry, up? Is this true? Uh, I hadn't considered that, but I mean... <laughs> I mean, Larry, you don't want it to be in an orbit. Serious, Larry, not to put words in your brain, but you don't want it to be in an orbit so low that it burns up in the atmosphere and scatters powdered plutonium worldwide. That would, if I may, suck or really suck. Yeah. So the blasting of space is... Uh, Larry, I very much appreciate you listening, taking the time to call. <laughs> Seriously, but I don't think it's... 
it sounds like a shortcut that really would lead to more trouble than it's worth. I think uh, what Alex is suggesting, discipline disassembly of airplanes and missiles is cheaper. Right, but I but I do appreciate the sentiment of of thinking it's, thinking the big thought problem. How would you get rid of all of them? I think that's a useful thought problem, even if shooting them into space might not be the most profitable way to do but, it. But let me just say, if they did blow up like you had a nuclear explosion in space, you'd know for sure it was a nuke. So you'd be confirming that you shot a nuke into space. It would not be the best way to confirm, but it's a What's way. What's the best way? Oh, I don't know, but probably something that doesn't involve <laughs> like creating an artificial radiation belt or something yeah, like yeah. that. Right? <laughs> Intuitive. Science Rules will be right back. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. And now, more science. What is different, and I was reading your biography, what is different about this nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, is this big concept of civil defense. Mm -hmm. What is civil defense? Civil defense is any sort of program or policy where you're trying to let everyday people affect the outcome of the war, in a sense. And it's not, you know, you could think of it as your military defense is you're going to try to shoot down the planes or shoot them back. Civil defense is what can you do on the home front? What can you do at home? So it is things like bunkers and hiding under desks. They have a little bit of this in World War II. And then in the early Cold War, after the Soviet Union gets nuclear weapons, this is when people start to say, oh, my God. Do we really have to worry about this at home? Do we really have to figure this out in the United States? Uh, which, again, in World War II, we have a little bit of this, but we have almost no violence done against the American home front in World War II other than Pearl Harbor. I mean, that's basically it. We, the oceans really insulate us from that. So it's a real radical shift of mind to think that you're suddenly vulnerable. So I remember very well being just th thinking that the Strategic Air Command— yeah with B-52 bombers flying 24 hours a day, 365 and a quarter days a year against the Soviet threat was all what was just something you had to have. You just had, that's a minimum. Now, we don't do that anymore, right? Nobody's flying 24-7. Or are they? They're not. And, and there's a good reason why not. I mean, one of the problems with having planes fly 24-7 is that after so many hours in the air, the odds of your plane crashing or dropping one of its bombs accidentally goes up. And so it was after a, a number of these accidents in which actual planes fell out of the sky or sometimes just dropped their payloads, sometimes on uh, American 
This soil. is the thing in South Carolina. There was one in South Carolina. There was one in Spain. We dropped them on our allies. And it, finally, there was a crash in Greenland. And that was the one that ended the 24-7 program because people said, this isn't worth it. <laughs> in fact, you're not supposed to put one on an airplane at all. It's it's considered a major issue. And there was a scandal uh, some years back where they accidentally flew some bombs around without realizing it. And that was seen oh, how do you, as... What? 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 <laughs> you load the plane up, you forget they're there, you take off, that sort of thing. That uh, sort of thing. So, it's sort of a it's a very low level version of a loose nukes scenario. Where you for, kind of forget where they where you've packed them. Yeah, it's a it's a somebody gets fired scenario. It's not great. <laughs> so let's say we had a way to take weapons apart and verify that we took them apart. Uh, I would like Alyssa to uh, chime in on this. Alyssa, are you out there? And would you present us with your insight? Hi, yeah, I had a question um, that you touched on a little bit earlier. And my initial question was, what happens to dismantled nuclear weapons? I mean, like, where, where does all the nuclear material go? What happens to all the, all the pieces, including all the radioactive pieces? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Uh, the answer is kind of boring, but you take out the radioactive bits and... You, you do this in a specialized facility called a gravel girdie. Uh, is that an acronym? No, that's just, uh, I think it's a reference to, um, is it Little Abner had gravel yeah, girdie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Little Abner. It's it's a sign of the vintage of the people who invented them, mm. perhaps. Yes, Little Abner uh, was a comic strip back yeah. in the days when uh, people read comic strips. In, pa- in newspapers. In newspapers. Yeah. Plant-based information yes. storage. <laughs> yes. And uh, they're set up in a way so that you're effectively under several tons of gravel so that if some part of the weapon explodes, the gravel will smush down over you and prevent contamination. Bad luck for you, but, you know, mm. there you go. Um, or your robot. Or a robot. And they have, I don't know if they've done it with nuclear, but they have used robots to take apart things. Uh, there's ups and downs to robots, right? Mm. You know. They it, don't have judgment, a lot of them. Well, but do you want to give the robots the nukes? This is the real question. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, the uh, uh, it, it, you take out the radioactive bits and you recycle it. You put it in your big pile of radioactive bits because that's expensive. The plutonium, the uranium, this costs a lot of money to produce, and you can use it for all sorts of things, whether weapons or non-weapons. Okay, yeah, let, let's drill down on that. What can yeah. you do with it? What can you do with the recycled material or the you, recovered material? You can store it and for the future. You could turn it, if you wanted to, into reactor fuel. Uh, you can downgrade it, basically, so it can't be used as a weapon. Um, you could use it as fuel for, like, a nuclear submarine where they do use, like, enriched material. Uh, uh, and spacecraft. Spacecraft. You could use it. You could do all sorts of fun, non-weaponsy things with that. Um, or, you know, if you really just wanted to get rid of it, you could uh, basically, you know, uh, melt it down and bury it in a pit or something. Whatever you want at that point. And then the rest of the weapon, you 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 just mostly throw that away. Uh, so I've been to um, the Bechtel facility in Hanford, Washington, Washington State, and there's this enormous machine shop, like a huge thing where everything is radioactive. All the milling machines, lathes, handling equipment, everything's radioactive. You can't go in there except for a few seconds in a suit, a few minutes in a suit. So in other words, it's doable. If you throw money at the problem. Oh, yeah. So, so now, Alyssa, before we, uh, before we finish with this question, I'm curious, did you have a, an idea in your mind? Did you imagine where these things go? Or, or is this just kind of a, a wide open question that you were asking? I was curious because um, I grew up in Missouri, kind of near a nuclear power plant. Um, and the waste from the plant um, was just kind of buried and discarded. And so I was just curious if it was a similar process 
for weapons or if um, the process was different since it was kind of a different grade or something. What, what's different really is that the, the waste that you get out of a reactor has had a lot of, uh, of the splitting, the fissioning activity happen in it. So it's got all sorts of gunk in it, all sorts of radioactive uh, other things. Fallout that hasn't fallen out. Exactly. All the fission products and all that kind of stuff. The fuel, if it hasn't gone off or been turned into a reactor, uh, you know, you don't want to make your silverware out of it or anything like that. But it's much more uh, uh, straightforward to handle. Even the plutonium, you, you put a little layer of nickel around it and you can hold it in your hand. <laughs> a little you layer know? of nickel yeah. and you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, plutonium is powering the the Curiosity rover on Mars, and, and it's Voyager powering the, Viking and, and the and the New the, Horizons spacecraft New Horizons, that, yeah. that visited Pluto, uh, and that that all came out of nuclear weapons, I think. So I just have a question: Is it? Uh, um, let me get this right, Alyssa. Excuse me. Did you have a follow-on question? Um, the. It was kind of answered in the follow-up question that you guys had for me. Um, I was curious about how much of the nuclear material from weapons um, compares to that from power facilities. But since it's kind of recycled and everything, you guys kind of explained it in my first question. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, how real would you say the risk is right now, either from you know, rogue actors, you know, non-nation actors, uh, or from you know, hot flesh places like between India and Pakistan. How, how real do you see the risk being right now? It's hard to put a number on it, and it really depends on the scenario, and it really depends on whether what you're optimistic. What do you optimistic. worry about? Uh, I worry about a number of things. So I still worry about North Korea. I could see a misunderstanding there leading them to think that it's all over for them. I know we're not at the worst diplomatic moment we've been with, but we can see uh, things change. When was change. the worst diplomatic moment? Well, we've had a few, but in recent memory that, there, you know, a year ago, we were very close. Oh, a year ago. Yeah, yeah. to signaling like we were going to do something. And whether we were or not, if they thought we were, that's, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could get back to there very easily, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> this is, these are, back to that worry, to, to a year ago worry. Yeah, I think period. we could get back. All of this diplomacy is based on the personalities of literally two people. And all you need is one of those people to stop playing ball and the whole thing will fall apart. Again, I worry a bit about the terrorist uh, situation, mostly because the uncertainties are large and the, uh, the the probability might be low, but the consequences might be high. I, I worry less about that. That's not going to like end the world or anything like that. But, you know, we've already seen what political ramifications would happen with something like 9-11, the consequences mm-hmm. of that. Now, multiply that by 10 or even 100 in terms of casualties. And, you know, who knows what the world looks like right after that happens. Um, I do worry about India-Pakistan. They mm-hmm. have periods of relative stability, and then they have periods of relative instability. Uh, at the moment, it's, you know, sort of anybody's guess. They're 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 having a lot of issues with each other. Uh, and then uh, the one thing I worry about, which I think, I worry about uniquely or or not or, or more than other people. Uh, if I was going to put a candidate for what nation might be tempted to use a nuclear weapon uh, again in anger, uh, I put the United States a lot say, higher at the top of the list than it ought to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've pursued some policies that have made it easier for that to happen. Um, you know, adopting new tactical weapons, you know, quote unquote, small weapons. 
we've set up a situation where you can imagine under a crisis situation, the president making a decision to do that. And it's really up to him for the most part. You can try to imagine people pushing back, but our system essentially enables one human being to make that call. And that's whoever happens to be the president at any given time. And it doesn't really matter who you want to assume the president is. Uh, there are going to be situations where that might feel like a tempting offer or a tempting uh, outcome. So with this said, let me ask you this. So I'm looking at a picture of Kim Jong-un, and he's got a bomb there with tubes attached to it or plumbing, a very elaborate looking thing. Is that a real bomb? You know, that's a difficult question to answer. Is it in the shape of a real bomb? It's in the shape of a real bomb. Is this the peanut bomb or the disco ball bomb that you're looking at? Because there's two. Uh, one, of <laughs> one of them is round <laughs> and one of them is two parts. It looks like a peanut. Um, and one of them is meant to be a H-bomb, a thermonuclear mm. weapon. And the other one is meant to just be a regular. Which is which. Bomb. I mean, not that. I, yeah. I mean, I don't really. I just want. I mean, I'm not going to yeah. build one. I yeah. mean, I'm just sure. saying. A yeah. peanut bomb slams one piece of material into another? No. The peanut bomb is using a fission reaction to set off fusion reactions. So, so one of the pieces is of the one of the lobes of the peanut is going to be the fission bomb, and the other one is going to be the fusion component. So just to clarify, a, a, a fission bomb is what they used to call an A-bomb, and, yes. a, and, a, and a fusion bomb is an H-bomb. Exactly. And the difference is that their fission bomb might be uh, maybe the size of the uh, bomb that destroyed Nagasaki, but their fusion bomb is probably 10 times as powerful as that. When you say size, you're at 30 kilotons, or right, we, we throw right, around exactly. these, these numbers. So fission is where you get very large atoms to disintegrate and release the energy that held, that held them together. And fusion is where you get very small atoms smashed together and overcome the force that keeps them apart. Exactly. Right. So this this process in stars is fusion, the process that keeps the Earth hot enough after these four and a half billion years is fission, generally. Yeah. So we throw these words around like it's a piece of cake. <laughs> we throw around we throw around fission, kiloton, fusion, H bomb, A bomb. What is nuclear fallout? It's the when you split those atoms in half, it's those half atoms that are left, which are these nasty little radioactive atoms, and they are decaying like crazy. So they're super radioactive. Uh, some of them are extremely radioactive, like they have a half-life of, a, of a less than a second. So they're just shooting all their energy out as fast as possible. Some of them will stick around for 100 years or something And like these are that. falling from the sky. Yeah, you can think of them like dust. So these these they're in the cloud. So as the cloud, you know, turns the fireball the mushroom turns into the mushroom cloud, it's got all this radioactive junk in it. And uh, especially if that radioactive junk is mixed with, say, the remains of a city or whatever <laughs> might be like sucked up into the cloud, God. remains of dirt. Wow. And this, is a, this is a very upbeat topic. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't know how to, you, you can't sugarcoat There's it. No no, there is no way. So, so if the radioactive stuff gets on this this dust, who, who knows where it came from, right? Maybe a city or an atoll or whatever you've blown up. Um, that dust can fall back to Earth again. So it falls out of the cloud. That's where the name comes from. And so, so it's, it's basically radioactive dust. And it's everywhere and deadly. Well, it's it, the worst stuff is going to be uh, if the bomb it has a lot of dirt and other stuff in it and just downwind of the bomb, that's going to be the worst area. Oh, but man. some of it, a little, you know, uh, detectable amounts will circulate throughout the entire upper atmosphere. That sucks. And, and just, to, just to put a point, not to keep coming back to uh, your age, but if you grew up during the years of nuclear testing, there is usually enough radioactive materials in your bones presently that when you die and you have your bones, 
bones, they could analyze it and say how old you were when the testing was. From the testing in after World War II. There was testing in Nevada and then the Marshall Islands mm. and the Soviet Union. Mm. And the fallout circulated in the Northern Hemisphere when some of those radioactive products ended up in the uh, grasses of the plains that got eaten by the cows, that got turned into the milk, mm. that got into your body, that got made into bones. And it's still radioactive. And it's still there. It's still radioactive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is universally recognized as the sound of radioactivity. Yeah. <laughs> so, Valentina, you've been uh, on hold for quite a while. And, and thank you for your patience. And I think after this, no this recent little exchange between the three of us here in the studio, you have a very pertinent remark. Take it, Valentina. Yes. Yeah, so my question was, what is your opinion and do you believe that we as a current generation are overstimulated with information. We've become almost numb to bad news, such as global warming, disease outbreaks, or in this case, the potential of a nuclear war to where we hear about it in the news and in the media, and we don't even register it. We have a lot of fatalism, and that's one of the issues that anybody who's trying to communicate about risk runs into again and again, whether it's nuclear or climate change or all of the million things that we have to worry about in the modern world. Um, and if people don't feel that they can do anything about that risk, then they easily slide into a position of just saying, well, whatever. Valentina, sounds like you uh, are among those people, or you might be. You're aware of it. Almost, yes. I'm very aware of it, and that's almost scary to me to where I'm scrolling through the newspaper, and I'll just be like, oh, nuclear fallout. I'll keep scrolling. Oh, hey, look, tacos, you know, special today. Oh, like, another mass shooting. Oh, just because, because it's too big, yeah. because there's nothing you can do about it? So, Alex, what can we do about it? Yeah, what can exactly. Valentina do about it? I, that's a big open question. So I work with people who do research on how people, especially younger people, process these kinds of risk messages with the goal of finding that way to get them actually to do something. And again, what could it be? Could it be write your senator? Could it be get more information? Could it be sign up for a campaign? Uh, whatever. So that they don't just put this in the part of their mind that where they put things they don't want to think about. And it's it's not easy. Uh, you can easily, you know, burn out that circuit, which is sort of what Valentina is saying here. Um, this is actually one of the things people make fun of the duck and cover and the fallout shelters and things like that. But if, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, if you grow up with that, that's part of your world. That's not something you can just ignore. That's something that actually changes your outlook on what matters in the world. Whereas if this is all just hypothetical, if this is something you say here on a podcast or maybe occasionally see on a website or something like that, um, it doesn't stick quite as much as things that are what they say embodied like that. You hiding under your desk, you going into the shelter, this makes these associations very tight in your brain as like, this is an actual thing I need to care about. Well, but also, it gives you um, a sense of empowerment. Yeah, exactly. This is to say, the example I give right now as a longtime Californian uh, is an earthquake. Mm -hmm. You know that there's steps to take. So when I was a little kid in elementary school, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the hallway. We're going to get on our knees and put our heads right against the wall. Cool. We're set. All right, let's go. But as then you, when you get to be a grown-up, and you see the black and white footage of uh, the aftermath of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you go, well, it's probably not going to work out so well. And so, Valentina, mm -hmm. what do you think we mm -hmm. should do to raise awareness of the problem of uh, nuclear weapons? I'm honestly completely lost because 
with everything going on, and again, it doesn't hit close to home for me. I'm from South Florida. You know, I look around, it's potential of us, you know, being hit down here. If, If we did, it probably wouldn't be that bad. So to me, it doesn't hit me close to home. So I find, you know, myself just not paying attention to it and not taking it seriously. So I have no idea what to do. Yeah, you know, in the, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the movie True Lies. The, there's a scene toward the end where mm-hmm. a, a nuclear bomb goes off, I think, off the, the Seven Mile Bridge. Uh, in to, Florida uh, Keys. To, yeah. to the Florida Keys. People are like, ah, only mm-hmm. one bomb went off. It's not a big deal. It, it's treated as the sort of afterthought. It was kind of a, you know, in <laughs> retrospect, kind of, a, kind of shocking. But, you know, it's, it's sort of along the lines of what you're saying that uh, it, it's, it's a little mm-hmm. too much for people to process. Alex, what would you do? You know, if we're talking about what would I do to get people more aware of this, I mean, what I try to do now is study the question. And teach classes about it. Well, I mean, that's useful for my students. But I'm more interested in the question of if your goal was to change not just my students, I can get them aware. But if your goal was to change how Americans think about this or young people, that's a much broader question. They should listen to Science Rules podcast and their lives will be enriched forever. If they do that, great. But even then, (laughs) so we, we test podcasts on people and see like... Does that, do they remember two weeks later? Do, does it, will they change their behavior based on something they hear? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes no. We, my colleague, this is my colleague, uh, Kristen Carl uh, she, uh, and Ashley Lytle, they've looked at a lot of different uh, medium uh, on like millennials. Like what works with a millennial? Do they want to watch a YouTube video? Do they want to read an article? Do they want to see an infographic? Do they want to see a cartoon? Whatever. And the, the you know, this is an empirical question. We could say what would be nice It'd be nice if they really wanted to read the article, but like that may not be true. Um, the the thing that worked the best in the experiment they did, the infographic. And you say, okay, I mean, that's not that's not the most heartening. Those are sometimes pretty low density. But if that's what they find to be the most compelling, and also they can remember it three weeks later, all right, let's invest all the money in infographics. I don't know, but this is the kind of the, uh, I don't know what the answer to this is. Valentina, right, well, one last question: Where do you get your information about this? Facebook, sadly. Um, Twitter. Yeah, well, that's reason. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, social no, media. What matters is the truth. Yeah, for me, it's things that are sh- because there's so much going on. It's whatever short and sweet and kind of infographical. You know, if it's a multi-page yeah. article, the chance, the chances of me getting through it, I just don't have the time in the day. Yeah. So when it's short and sweet and kind of gets to the point, those are the easiest things to kind of. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for getting us uh, down this path because it's it's certainly such an important topic. Uh, I appreciate your call. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valentina. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Science Rules is back. Uh, Aaron has a question. Uh, Aaron, uh, where are you calling from and what is your question? Come in, Aaron. I'm calling from California. And my question is basically, 
given everything you've talked about, the risks of nuclear power, nuclear weapons, um, the proliferation of it, the the fact that some of us don't have the mental power to even think about nuclear on our day-to-day, what does that say about humanity at large? Are we all just a bunch of selfish apes still? I think, sure. But <laughs> what uh, if I may just jump in, the thing that makes a human different, how about this, an adult different from pre-adult is self-control. At any time, how many cop shows are on television? Two dozen? (laughs) Anyway, everybody pulls their gun. They're all looking at each other. And in the uh, happy scenarios, they all eventually put their guns down and move on. In the sad scenarios, they just open fire. and And in the worst case, nobody's left standing. So, Alex, do you think that uh, leaders can be cultivated that have self-control and can show the world the danger of nuclear weapons and the importance of dismantling them. Here's the thing. Even if you get leaders that do this, it's not just about everybody being in control and rational. There's things that can go wrong. And this is one of the points that some of the people who lived through, say, like the Cuban Missile Crisis would make. So Robert McNamara. Or people in Japan last year when the Korean missile went overhead. Sure. Robert McNamara had this great has this great line, and uh, was he Secretary of Defense? Secretary of Defense yeah. during Cuban Missile Crisis, um, and and later one of the lessons he took from it. This is in uh, Errol Morris's Fog of War, which is a great documentary is that uh, rationality will not save us. That Kennedy was rational, Khrushchev was rational. These were both people who understood the consequences. They understood what could go wrong. They understood what it looked like. And yet they still almost blundered in the nuclear war, which if you're somebody who's against nuclear weapons, you see this as, as uh, uh, you know, more ammunition for the, we shouldn't even have these ammunition, things lying around. Well, so to say. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question for you. Do you think that humanity will survive the next millennium? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, because uh, when you say humanity, will there still be Paris, London, New York as we know them today? Or will it be apocalyptic um, (laughs) road warrior and just a few people get by? But I think writ large, humans are so resourceful and so they're ubiquitous on the Earth's surface that uh, somebody's going to get through it in a thousand years. In the same way... Uh, you just look what happened to the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. went out of business, but it, it, things came uh, afterwards. How about this? Will the United States be here in a millennium? Mm, Hard to say. Yeah. Hard to say. And certainly a nuclear war or by analog, uh, and important to me, an asteroid impact mm-hmm. would change things on a global scale. Aaron, how much do you worry about this? How much do you throw up your hands and say humans suck and we're never going to get out of this? It's, you know, some days I'm on our side, some days I, I do wish for that asteroid. I think it, it just depends on, you know, what horrible a, thing happened in the news that morning. Yeah, it's the, the sweet meteor um, of death, they I, call I, it. I, right, right. I do believe that humans are intrinsically good. We will find... Uh, the 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 ability to overcome some of our baser instincts, but then I see things out there that make me question that idea uh, on the daily. So it's just you know, you guys are a lot smarter than I am. So I wanted to get your hmm. insight into such a thing. I don't know if we're smarter. Yeah, we're just... that's something we should put to a scientific test <laughs> at some, at some yeah. later point. Uh, but 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 Alex, um, you you said earlier that you know that rationality is not. You know, a short, you know, is, is has no guarantee of making uh, you know a good or effective decision. 
what's the best part of ourselves that we can mobilize to to reduce this this risk? Well, you know, even the thing that Aaron said about we're you know fundamentally good or something like that, which which you know we could ask, what does it mean? Are we or not? But the part when we do act good, it's usually because we're being empathetic. It's usually because we're taking into account others' feelings and others' experiences and things like that. And that's the kind of thing humans are pretty good at. We are pretty good at. You know, this is why half of our entertainment is about like watching somebody else's story and then crying because we're sympathetic with that person's story. If we can do that on a global scale, you know, maybe we'll be all right. We're, we have a lot of things that push us to not do that. And that's the part of us that becomes greedy or afraid or uh, uh, selfish in those kind of ways. Uh, I need another nuclear missile. I need another one. We don't have enough. I need more. There's a line, and I, I'm trying to remember where it originally comes from. LBJ quotes it at one point, and somebody else quoted it. I, he's not making up the line, and I cannot remember who the original person is. But it's basically, you know, if we do not learn to love each other, we'll be dead. And I it feels sappy to say that kind of thing. It sounds like the kind of thing you'd expect somebody, you know, a preacher to say or something like that. But on some, I think, long-term horizon – if you're trying to avoid just being a couple scrappy human beings living in Tierra del Fuego or something, eating rats, right? The sort of after the after the like in threads, was yeah, that right, exactly. Another you know, apocalyptic if, series. If, if you're trying to imagine humanity maintaining a reasonably high level of civilization and technology for a long period, uh, I don't see it being possible if we're still stuck in this like state versus state, person versus person, uh, this ideology versus that ideology. And I'm not claiming I know the answer. We're not going to sit around and sing kumbaya and it's going to be good. Uh, but we need to find some other way of thinking. And there may be, you know, psychological difficulties that keep us from doing that. Well, hold it. In this universe, science rules. And as we like to point out, humans are more alike than they are different. Sure. Everybody's from East Africa. We're spread all over the world. We have much more in common than we don't. So Aaron, that was a great question. Yeah. And, and I have to say, Oddly, a much more optimistic kind of answer than I expected. <laughs> I, was, I was all prepared to go down the, down the chute to nowhere after that question. Well, I guess it just shows how good we are as humans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Some of my best friends are, are humans. <laughs> not all of them, to be sure. So I think, Corey, if I'm not mistaken, it is time for... That's right, people. The I'm lightning round. Lightning round. Are you, are you prepared for a lightning round of questions? Oh, yeah. Uh, we throw the questions, you throw the answers. All right, let's, let's okay. do it. Uh, Bill, do, would you like to start? How much power does the president really have to launch a nuclear strike? Uh, legally, uh, all the power. Wow. <laughs> one uh, guy. One guy. It's You can imagine situations in which people would say, uh, I've refused to obey this order, the military, maybe the top military guy. Uh, but there are very small conditions under which that would be even plausible, and even then, probably not. A follow-up lightning strike. How many people really do have the launch codes? How many people? Well, there the, there are two sets of codes. One is the one the president has in his pocket. That just proves he's the president. Those aren't launch codes. Any actual launch codes are going to be at the different missile commands and places like that. So the actual ones that unlock the weapon, that's not what the president has. Those are kept with the weapons themselves. So uh, the answer is one for the, like, prove that you're the president codes and uh, a, a finite but fairly large number for the people who have the codes that would open up the weapons and things like that. So, right. so just a quick follow-up. So if the president orders a strike, um, then that order gets distributed to all the different launch centers and that and then his code activates their codes? It, his code is not needed for that. 
Okay. All that code does is it tells the military guy on the phone he's talking to that he's the president. Then the military guy, he forwards on the order and it goes through all the launch centers. And this is where the two colonels sitting there under underground in North Dakota have to decide whether they're going to kill kids on the other side of the world. They, in principle, will not decide. They will do what they are told to do. They are screened and drilled and go through checklists. The military does not want them to make a single decision because if they do, that imperils the whole system's uh, credibility. Uh, all right. What is heavy water? Heavy water is deuterium oxide. So oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Regular water is, is hydrogen oxide, you could say, dioxide, right? H2O. Mm -hmm. uh, deuterium is a form of hydrogen. If, if regular hydrogen is one proton and an electron, deuterium is just one proton, one neutron and an electron. Do you think we, the listeners, uh, you and I, Corey, will ever see a nuclear-free world? Um, I'm not that optimistic, to be honest. I could be wrong, would be happy to be, I guess, wrong, though there are nuclear-free worlds that are maybe more dangerous than the current world in different ways, but probably not as likely to nuke themselves, so that's good. Uh, but I, I, I don't foresee it in my lifetime, and I'm younger than both of you, though who knows, you know, you never know who's going to live longer. It doesn't seem like that's exactly in the cards right now. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Not to go back to the question of did the Cold War end and all that sort of stuff. But in 19, I don't know, 86 or something, nobody predicted there would be no Soviet Union within the decade. Uh, these things can sometimes go very quick. And one of the upsides to having a lot of this be concentrated uh, in a couple people, like say a president, is that sometimes those people can make a decision and a whole thing changes. Alex Wellerstein, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and, and just enlighten us on the, what is really a global problem. Callers, thank you for your insights, your wonderful questions. I am Bill Nye. I've been here with Corey S. Powell. We've had nothing but fun. Uh, well, well, we've had nothing but uh, sobering, fascination. Sobering fun. And just remember, when it comes to the nuclear weapons part of our universe, science rules. If you like science rules, and who doesn't, tell your friends. Have them subscribe to the show. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineers are Casey Halford, Jared O'Connell, and Brendan Burns. Mixing and original theme music by Casey Halford. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher. At Stitcher, Science Rules. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.